It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. I am going to share with you one of the most phenomenal names given to the people of God. It's found in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, in the form of a question. Paul said, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So he gives two categories, and human beings fit in one or the other. You are either among the vessels of wrath or the vessels of mercy, and there's no middle ground. Well, I choose to be a vessel of mercy. And I believe you're listening to this podcast because that's been your choice as well. What is mercy anyway? I have two definitions. Mercy, number one, is kindness expressed toward those who are hurting, damaged, or in great need. Or mercy can be compassion shown especially to offenders or those who are worthy of judgment. We fit into both of those categories. We were damaged, we were hurting, but God showed us mercy. We were deserving of judgment because of the sins we committed against him, but he poured out his compassion on us instead. That's the kind of God he is. In fact, the Bible refers to him as the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. If he's the father of mercies, then he's beginning new expressions of mercy constantly in our lives. Notice that both those who are in covenant with God and those who are not are referred to as vessels, because a vessel is an object that is intentionally created to be filled with some kind of substance. So human beings have this capacity. They have this inner vacuum that is either going to be filled with demonic influence or divine influence. They have this inner emptiness that's going to be filled with hate or love, depression or joy, anxiety or peace. It's going to be filled with rebellion against God or submission to his lordship. You make the choice. You are a vessel. You have that capacity as a human being to be filled. You have that vacancy within your heart. Well, one of the first things God fills you with is his mercy. Thank God for that. Mercy is a dominant divine attribute. I think one of the most exciting passages in the Old Testament that I find about the mercy of God is in Exodus chapter 34. The children of Israel had just rebelled against God, seriously rebelled, severely rebelled against God. They had heard just prior to this 
the voice of God, the audible thunderclap of God's voice speaking from Mount Sinai and giving the Ten Commandments. And as soon as Moses went up into the mountain to get further instructions from God, they came to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods. And he made them a golden calf. And when Moses came down, they were dancing around that calf in an orgy of lust in the name of worship. And of course, Moses was enraged and took the two tablets of stone with the handwriting of God and burst them asunder at the base of the mountain. God spoke to him that he had to go back up into the mountain. And this time, he had to cut the stones out and then offer them to God. And then God, once again, wrote on the stones his Ten Commandments, not to get human beings under his manipulative control, but to protect them from the devil's manipulative control. People don't understand commandments are for your benefit, not oppressive things that hedge you in and prevent you from doing what you want to do. But when Moses went back up into the mountain, the Bible says he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and he communicated with God. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the first word that God used to describe himself was the word merciful. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. And of course, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. The thousands of people that should have been judged instead received immediately from heaven mercy to be poured out on them and give them a second chance. That's the God we serve, the Father of mercies. David called him the God of my mercy because God's mercy perfectly fit the crises and the disasters that were in David's life. The personal failures, the stupid choices, and then the brokenness and the repentance. God's mercy, like puzzle parts fitting together, fit perfectly with David's fractured walk with God and restored him. Restored to him the joy of his salvation. And that same mercy can fit the fractures and broken places in your life. Not only can David say he's the God of my mercy, you and I can say he's the God of my mercy. Wonderful. One of the next places in the Old Testament that really captures my attention concerning the mercy of God is the construction of God's dwelling place on the earth. And it was all a shrine for a very important article of furniture. There were six articles of furniture in the tabernacle of Moses, but the most important one was the one that was least seen. And sometimes the most important ways that God moves in your life are the ways that nobody else sees. It's just between you and God. And nobody saw this article of furniture except the high priest one time a year. And it was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained the tablets of stone with the commandments of God and the handwriting of God, a golden bowl full of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, 
and on the top of the ark was a lid that was also called the mercy seat. And so the top of the law was the bottom of something even better. And that was God's representative throne on earth because that seat was not for anyone else but God. And the glory cloud of God's presence rested on the mercy seat in between the two cherubim. So it represented heaven invading earth and God ruling and reigning among his people as their king. Notice that the glory of God and the mercy of God are married together at that spot. The glory, which the Jews referred to as the Shekinah, rested on the mercy seat. Glory and mercy go together because the very fact that the glory of God comes in your life is an indication of his mercy. And because he's a merciful God, you and I can experience his glory. And of course, that stretches from time into eternity because one day the glory will get so strong in you, you will be glorified. You will receive a glorified eternal body that shines like the sun in the kingdom of your father. That is the mercy of God. Think of it. So the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. Underneath that lid, you found the law. And also the book of the law was either in the ark or in a slot outside the ark. No one knows for sure. But the law that dictated the rules, the regulations that God's people had to go by and the judgments they would suffer if they disobeyed was lower than the mercy seat. So there was one thing higher than the law, and that was the mercy of God. God has given commandments in the New Testament. There's a thousand and fifty commandments in the New Testament. I've got a list I could send to you if you want. Just email me. And yet there's something higher than all the commandments, and that's the promise of mercy if it's needed. This is really a great insight that's hidden in the original Greek in the New Testament. Only one time is the mercy seat mentioned in the New Testament. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. And it's describing the Ark of the Covenant, and it says, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And the Greek word that is translated mercy seat there is hilasterion, H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, hilasterion. And interestingly, curiously, amazingly, hilasterion is also translated propitiation. Now, that may not mean much to you or sound very impacting, but once I explain it, it's going to be very impacting because, well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It talks about Jesus' role as our intercessor the one who stands in the gap, who ever lives to make intercession for us. And it said, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that's you and me, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, not only ready to pour out compassion on us when we deserve judgment, but faithful 
And the word faithful means full of faith. He believes in you. He believes in your value. He believes in your future. He believes in your destiny. He believes in the process that he's executed in your life and inside of you. He's a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, there that word is, for the sins of the people. What does propitiation mean? It means satisfaction for the demands of justice. Justice demands that you and I die because the soul that sins, it shall die. Spiritually, soulishly, emotionally, mentally, physically, and eternally. Death opening its mouth to devour us completely and forever. Justice demanded that we die. The whole human race in Adam all die, the Bible said. But it also tells us that Jesus tasted death for every person. And because he assumed the judgment that should have fallen on you, that should have fallen on me, he became our hilasterion. He became the propitiation for our sins, satisfaction for the demands of justice. Now the justice that had been served at Calvary is canceled. It is no more. And those who claim his death on Calvary are free from the judgment they should have received. I feel like shouting right now. I don't know about you, but I could let out a shout of hallelujah to the highest. Hosanna to the highest because he is my hilasterion. He is my propitiation. The judgment that should have fallen on me fell on him instead. But that same word, hilasterion, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, is translated mercy seat. So Jesus is my mercy seat. He's the living, eternal Ark of the Covenant. And you and I have received him into our hearts. So now the Ark of the Covenant is within us. And the mercy seat is within us, which speaks of far more than just you and I receiving mercy. But we become the place where God enthrones himself to extend mercy to the world. And we'll be covering that more in an upcoming uh, podcast and a series that I'm going to be doing on the mercy of God and our calling to be not only recipients of mercy or vessels of mercy, but we're also called to be the merciful. So what flows in must flow out to the world around us that's in desperate, desperate need of mercy. Now, as I close this podcast, I want to share with you a story of an amazing thing that happened in my life that demonstrated the mercy of God more to me personally than anything that's ever happened in my life. You can find mercy testified about in Scripture. In fact, I think the greatest example of the mercy of God in the entirety of the Bible is the Apostle Paul because he was a murderer of Christians. He was killing them. He was taking them into prison. He was torturing them. He was doing everything he could to stamp out the progress of the kingdom of God and the declaration of the name of Jesus. And he blasphemed that holy name that saves those who call upon it. And yet he said, because he did it ignorantly, he obtained 
mercy. And because the church prayed for him, I'm sure, they sought God in his behalf. Jesus manifested himself to this one that was the worst enemy of the church, and he became the greatest professor and proponent of the gospel in the Gentile world. That displays the mercy of God, if anything in the Bible does. But let me tell you about something that happened in my life personally. I was conducting a meeting in Kumbakonam, India, and I was told by the ministers, by the pastors that were supporting and organizing the meeting, that I was the first Western missionary to ever hold an outdoor meeting in the city itself, within the city limits, because it was a Hindu center, and all around me were these huge Hindu temples, and some of them could handle thousands of worshipers at a time. And underneath the city, there was a labyrinth of passages going from one temple to the other. And every 50 feet or 100 feet, there was a little alcove with a god and fruits and flowers and incense laid before that god. And it was just an amazing place. There was a baptismal pool in the middle of the city where I forget the exact number, but it was something like 10,000 people could be baptized at once. Not Christian baptism, but a ritual in Hinduism where they would pour water over themselves, hoping that their sins and their evil karma could be washed away. So here I am, a threat to their culture and a threat to their belief system that's been in place for centuries and millennia. And I had the gall in their minds to preach a different approach to God right in the middle of all of this. Well, most Hindu people are extremely gentle, kind, and tolerant. But there was a group of radical Hindus that wanted me out of their city. Absolutely, as quickly as possible, they were minded toward not only ridding their city of me, but getting rid of me altogether. They plotted my murder. They decided they were going to wait until the very end of my first message. The first night I was there, they would storm the platform, beat me up publicly, and then tie me to the bumper of their car and drag me through the city until I was dead. And I asked them the next day why they wanted to do that to me. They said, we wanted to, uh, we wanted to discourage missionary activity in our city. And that's the word they used. I said, well, if I was alive after that, I definitely would have been discouraged. But let me tell you what happened. I preached for about an hour and I felt such a demonic resistance against me. I knew if I made an invitation that no one would come. Uh, I knew they were just uh, not understanding the gospel enough to respond with their hearts. So I was searching in my spirit what to do and how to proceed. And God dropped a word of knowledge into my spirit. And God said, call for the deaf and tell them if what you preached is true, every deaf person will hear again. Well, that was a pretty uh, frightening thought to a degree to put the whole ministry on the line, put the name of Jesus on the line, and, and, and yet I knew it was God. And so even though I did it with fear and trembling, I responded in obedience, and I made that uh, assertion. I said, bring the deaf, and if what I've taught, what I've preached is true, every deaf person will hear again. And they brought me seven deaf people. Four were totally deaf, 
three were partially deaf or deaf in one ear. And I was about to pray for the first one. And then all of a sudden, behind me, about 20 feet, I heard this crashing, crunching sound. There was a big padlock about this big on a 20-foot high gate that was supposed to prevent break-ins. And I didn't know it, but there were six Hindu radicals back there that had a sledgehammer and they were hitting that lock. And that was the moment when they had chosen to charge the platform and beat me up. Well, I'm praying for the first man. I told them to bring me one of the totally deaf people first, not knowing how critically important that was. God gets in the details. And I laid my hands on him and I was praying for him and I heard that crunching, crashing sound. And suddenly the lock fell to the concrete. It was even louder. The, and all the ministers on the platform turned around to see what was happening. I turned around to see what was happening. And six men came rushing toward me with this angry look on their faces, ready to beat me up. And yet, even though I'd quit praying, my hands were still on the man's ears. And suddenly he jerked out of my hands and started screaming, I can hear, I can hear, I can hear. And the crowd went wild. And the leader, I found out the next day, of that Hindu radical group stopped with this odd look on his face. And he walked over and started speaking in the man's ears, whispering, and the man was repeating it back. And he shook his head, amazed, and called his men over, and they all started testing the guy. And he would repeat back their whispers. And they, I heard them talking in broken English. They said, it is a miracle. It is a miracle. God has worked a miracle. I didn't find out until the next day. You talk about a genius God. The next day, I asked them why they decided not to beat me up as they had planned. And I found out that the leader of the next door, uh, the leader of the radical Hindu group was the next door neighbor of the man who got healed. Think of that. God had to be the one to set that up. So he knew absolutely it was not a fake miracle. He knew it had truly come to pass. All seven people got their healing. They all heard again. I made an invitation and about 500 people came forward that night, at least 500, it may have been more, and gave their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was another expression of mercy that took place <clears throat> because outside the gate to the big area where we held our meeting, there was a rich man in town who had lost everything. He'd lost his business, lost his home, lost his self-respect. He was living on the streets, sleeping uh, outdoors with his mother because they had to beg every day, all day long, just to get a handful of rice to survive. And finally, after living that way for several months, he decided this is too degrading too demeaning, too humiliating. I'm going to end my life and hope that I'll come back reincarnated into a better set of circumstances. So he begged all day long and got enough money to go and buy two packs of poison for him and for his mother. And they planned their suicide that night. On his way back from buying the poison, he walked by our crusade, crusade grounds. And he looked in and saw those 
that got their healing. He happened to walk by right when the miracles were taking place and right when I gave an invitation. And he'd heard enough of what I said toward the end about Jesus being the Savior of the world that he thought, I've tried all the other Hindu gods and none of them have moved for me. I'll try Jesus. And he was one of the ones that came to the altar and got saved and gave his heart to the Lord. God had compassion on somebody that was hurting, somebody that was deeply pained and ready to end it all. He asked to see me the next day and he brought two packs of poison and handed them to me and proceeded to tell his story. So the mercy of God was flying everywhere that night. The mercy of God was poured out on people that didn't understand the gospel until they saw a demonstration of power. Then they were ready to be saved. The mercy of God was poured out on a bunch of radical Hindus that planned on murdering someone who proclaimed the name of Jesus and God mercifully turned their hearts around and saved them. And certainly the mercy of God fell on me because I was rescued from what would have been the end of my life. The mercy of God fell on a man that was standing just outside the entrance to the crusade grounds who was planning suicide that night. And the mercy of God fell on his mother because instead of dying that night, her life became blessed with the presence of God. She became a Christian as well. So God's mercy prevailed in a magnificent way on a night when it should have been terrible instead. It should have been disastrous instead. Well, if God could do that in a land that does not, for the most part, honor the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, a dominance of Hinduism is in the land of India, then how much more can God pour out in your life the mercy that he's promised in his word? Believe it. Trust him for it. Praise him for it. Humble yourself. And you can receive it this very day in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shree, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.